Rector's Cupboard presents Not Ashamed Towards a Healthy View of Self and Sexuality with keynote speaker Hilary McBride, May 29th and 30th in North Vancouver. For information or to register, go to universe.com slash not ashamed. Universe.com slash not ashamed. It's January 2020, and one of the news events that's happening right now as we speak is that there's a trial in New York City for Harvey Weinstein. Uh, Most people know what this is about. This is about multiple sexual assault allegations against Weinstein, and in this case, two particular women, and then a number of witnesses who are speaking uh, about this. Uh, I was interested, as we look to the topic for today, uh, as we're looking at sexual shame and purity culture, in how this is still being played, even in 2020, that the defense still is going to be, we've already found out that these number of these women who were sexually assaulted by Harvey Weinstein, uh, the defense is that it was consensual and that these women continued to correspond with Weinstein after the supposed assaults, which supposedly gives evidence that they weren't really assaulted. Uh, In my mind, and for many of us, this is a bit of a red flag that we still are in a culture uh, where uh, sexual shame is, is pretty... Uh, rampant and plays in a lot of these things. I noticed in one of the articles I was reading about it that uh, some of the women have kind of been speaking just through the media, addressing Weinstein, saying, well, this is your fault, you've brought this on yourself, as if the women are still taking some kind of responsibility for him feeling bad. So this is all around us everywhere, not simply in uh, religious culture, but in culture as a whole, and we're glad today to be welcoming our guest and to be talking about some of these things. We're glad you joined us. In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. Well, welcome to the rector's cupboard. This is series two, episode three. That's what we're calling it. I believe that. That's what and we uh, here at the mic is Allison Williams. Hello. And Brett Ziegler. Hi. And our guest, who we will introduce later properly, Hillary McBride. We're glad to have you here with us. Hi, Thanks everybody. for coming. Uh, say a note about Brett. This is Brett's first time on the mic on Rector's Cupboard, but we go way back. Way back. We used to work with Brett, and Hillary and Brett go way, 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 way back. Way back. You were in a play together. We've been in a couple together, yeah. A couple yeah. plays together. Yep. Yeah, so there'll be 90s. some reminiscing. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So there'll be some reminiscing. Well, we want to give most of the time for this episode to the main interview, but I thought we'd start off with just a couple of kind of silly things that maybe don't have much to do with much, but uh, are things that we can identify with as we receive uh, news stories online or from other people. And that's, I came across an article just the other day that was about a pastor in Zimbabwe. And this pastor in Zimbabwe, uh, I can't remember the name of the church, like Super Miracle something, something like that, right? And he was going to show his congregation kind of a supernatural expression. So he, he was going to walk on water like Jesus. So supposedly he did this, and he was able to walk on water, but he got eaten by alligators. 
That didn't happen to Jesus. No, or to Peter. No, or to Peter. No, and apparently not to this pastor either. Okay. Because it apparently never happened. So I saw this a few days ago, kind of four or five days ago in like a little news feed. And then I looked up on Snopes, you know, like, is this, did this happen? And right away it said, no, this is false. And it turns out that the story was mostly um, shared around in 2017. But also that it had happened in 2016. And they looked up, there's no such church, there's no such pastor, there's no such... So I just wanted to kind of ask you guys, what do you think? You can talk about crocodiles and (laughs) water. Um, Or alligators. Is it alligators? Yeah, alligators. Um, Doesn't matter, because it's fake. So it could be It could be both of them. It could be a sea monster. Um, So we can talk about that. Or we can talk about this kind of, obviously, generally the concept of, you know, discerning whether something is true or not. Tell me what you think about the pastor and the alligators. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that there's definitely... Um, I mean, the fact that we have Snopes means that this is a pretty prevalent problem, that there's a lot of disinformation going around and a lot of news stories that, that pop up in people's feeds and uh, on Facebook and Twitter and stuff that necessarily are not necessarily factual. Right. Um, so I think that we are in an age where there's a different kind of onus than maybe previously there was. Um, to, to try to check and verify things so, for ourselves before perpetuating them. Sure. What do you think is the motivation for somebody to make up a story like this? I think in this case, there's a lot to do about the idea that um, it, um, desiring to see a supernatural expression in a right. church is ridiculous. Which would be okay until the alligators. It would. Right. So somebody... Falsely wrote this story. Actually, I would maybe argue for the other reason to say this is so stupid. Obviously, these kinds of things don't happen. Ha ha ha! He got eaten by alligators. Yeah, right? which is interesting. So if he well. if he didn't get eaten by alligators, then the motivation is like, look, supernatural stuff. Mm-hmm. But if he did get eaten by alligators, look how dumb people are to believe supernatural things, right? But of course, the question is: this is an extreme character example. But whether it's on you know social media or wherever it is that we quickly get a story and pass it on. Like in, when I was in pastoral ministry for years, I got countless stories from people who, look what this political commentator said, or look what Billy Graham said 50 years ago, or look what this person said. They tended to say things like about how the, bad the world was and give credence to things. And so many times I would say to the parishioner, I would look it up, or in some cases I would know it was false. And sometimes I would go back to them and say, we kind of have a burden for truth here. And this might kind of lend credibility to whatever we're feeling, but we probably don't want to do this, right? Okay, so one more story, and that is, thank you very much, and that is about, uh, this apparently kind of happened, so we looked this one up too, 15-year-old girl in Kentucky at a private Christian school, and she was expelled, apparently, last week, and the way the news story that we read said was she was expelled for posting online a picture of her with a mm, rainbow her sweater mom on. It. Yeah, so I think, but I first read that she oh, had posted she had? it. Oh, she had? Okay. Um, with a rainbow sweater and a rainbow birthday cake. And the school expelled her. You guys hear this? You heard it. I have. Yeah. I mean, immediately, I, I went to a private Christian school. Um, so there's, uh, and there, there's, there's some issues with that. Um, <laughs> but... I, one of my first thoughts was I was like, well, that kind of seems on brand for for what I've personally known, but 
I've also tried to learn how to check my biases a little bit because my bias is kind of wanting to uh, initially just dig in and be like, see, look how ridiculous yeah, they're being. Look how dumb they are. But I actually, like, I took a step back and I was like, I'm going to do a little bit more looking in. And there was a statement that was released by the school that apparently there have been several behavioral issues over the last, or many behavioral issues over the last several years with this particular student. Although they didn't seem didn't to deny, they, um, they, they listed vaping and Vape? skipping, yeah, skipping classes and some behavioral issues. Um, so I go, okay. Um, and they say it wasn't the, the, this post that, that I believe her mother made um, was like the straw that broke the camel's back sort of a thing. And I'm like, okay, so there's, there's, there's a bit more to the story. It sounds like a bit of an overreaction. It, it does. I'm just going to lay that out there. <laughs> she might. No sweaters. No sweaters allowed. No, the yes. assumption that she's provoking them with rainbows. Right, yes. So a violent act. Yes. Yeah. Like it's just well, there's, like, there's the implicit homophobia, but then there's also right. like... Is this a behavioral issue to wear a rainbow sweater that that gets stacked on top of other behavioral issues? I'm clearly confused. Obviously, it's a <laughs> it's a behavioral issue only in terms of authority, I guess, to them. Exactly. Like, who are you to put this in our face? But I think it really it's just puts egg on their face because what kind of administration is acting in health if their knee jerk response is to expel someone from a school for one thing like this? Yeah, I mean, are the there are better ways to handle a situation if you're unhappy with a student's right. behavior. <laughs> As in dialogue and maybe inquiring well, what might be going said, on tried, for them. We met with her. Oh. We talked well, about, gosh, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm sure. And I mean, one would wonder that given a lot of the present context that, you know, it's not abnormal when a situation of this sort of thing happens that the uh, quote-unquote like injured party or whatever would then go to media and like you're not going to come out looking fantastic i'm like if this student had as many behavioral issues as the school is trying to claim she had i'm like find something else hang your hat on that because then you don't need to be accused of homophobia don't you like maybe this i don't think this is just me but you kind of cheer her on a little bit like you don't like you think she clearly doesn't fit and what I would also say from a developmental psychology perspective, just to add a little bit of gravitas yeah. to the conversation, <laughs> is, is that experimenting with challenging behavior, boundary pushing, awesome. is a developmentally appropriate Great. task for adults, or sorry, for adolescents. Yeah. And then if you're not doing that, you're actually repressing a really fundamental task for self-development and personnel if, and identity growth. And if you saw the photo, have you seen the photo? No, I haven't. I no. know if you see the photo, you will go, oh, way to go. Yeah. Like she's yeah. she she's doing exactly so, what you mentioned there yeah. and you know to have conversation with her and to so but again it's interesting to like you say check our bias and mm. kind of see yeah. what's the school doing and they if they have some kind of code you're supposed to live by or whatever but I don't think the code would say you're not allowed to take a picture with a rainbow sweater and so And if it does good for her she's free now. Right. <laughs> Right. And she's 15, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So you, gotta, you get the sense she's got some kind of interesting One to and watch. good days ahead. Yeah. Yes. She's a thought leader, Although yeah. perhaps, generally in generation. institutions, and from, from my experience, like I, I went to a reasonably conservative uh, private Christian school, um, that they don't always deal with those boundary pushing things very well. They like to be like, these are our really tri- like tight framework that, that you are allowed to exist in. So how can you... Yeah, no, it's not generally geared to be beneficial for mental health. (laughs) That's not, I don't think, the end goal. No, absolutely It's a lot of, like, um, behaving properly, making sure people understand how they fit within that social construct. 
Yeah, and I, well, we're going to talk today, some of the things we are speaking about today, uh, sexual shame, purity culture, there is clearly uh, kind of a different uh, heaviness for that as it's been applied to young girls and to women, or to young women and women. And I don't know if that's the case here. You know, she's a 15-year-old girl. Would a 15-year-old boy who provoked to the same level, maybe with something else, be treated in the same way? I'm not sure. We yeah, don't or maybe he'd get an ADHD diagnosis maybe and be pathologized in some right. way. Exactly. I mean, there's lots of different exactly. ways of looking at yeah. it. Well, thank you very much. We're mm. going to introduce our cupboard master, Mr. Ken Bell, to come in and uh, go through the tasting here at House of Funk in North Vancouver. Thank you very much, Todd. And yeah, we're at House of Funk, and they've been open since, uh, since May Oops. of last year. We get to overlook a beautiful view of rainy Vancouver as we enjoy this. And uh, everything at House of Funk is uh, it's either aged in wood bar barrels, or it has bacteria added to it, or wild yeast. So they're kind of going for a bit of an edge on that. And so we have four things to taste. Uh, the first one is uh, called Vahala, which is sort of a nod to the Hall of Odin, where the souls of the heroes go. So it seemed like an, a, somehow an appropriate uh, drink for us to have. Is that this one here? That's, yeah, that's the, the sort of yellowy of one. And then after that is uh, Scoria, which is uh, a much darker, it's, it's a nitro uh, stout, milk stout. And then Funk Juice, which has raspberry and boysenberry in it. And because of our other guest here, we're going for the Brett Saison. I saw that uh, on the menu and wondered whether we were going to yeah, do that. Yeah, we're going to do the Brett Saison <laughs> in honor of our special guest. So taste it. Tell me what you tell me what you think of the different ones. Just for the record, Hillary has told me she's not a huge beer fan. So <laughs> so just take what she says lightly. But we invite everyone to come down <laughs> and try try out uh, the mm -hmm. House of Funk and uh, in North Vancouver. What do you guys think? <laughs> I can stop. Hillary's reaction stop. is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we can Hillary get you some right water. Here, she would love this beer. I yeah, bet. try try the boysenberry one okay. there. That one might yeah. be. What do you Have think, Brett? Have a little Brett? bit of fruity notes to it. We'll see. What do you What do you think, and Brett, Allison? What do you think of the the different beers? What's your What's your face? The boysenberry yeah. is amazing. It's a juice. That's so great. I'll yeah. speak on behalf of non-beer drinkers. Yeah. I I would nurse this slowly over uh -huh. several hours without spitting it out. I well, feel like so that's just that a high vote of so confidence. Of yeah, if you don't <laughs> drink beer, you could drink this. You could drink that this. Yes. And <laughs> finally, try the Brent. Uh, Brett? Brett. Sorry, the Brett, and, and We've changed see what name. you think about the Brett. Brett, how do you think? Oh, it's really sweet. I just like, like oh. you. <laughs> just <laughs> like you. All right. Well, thank you very much. Enjoy your beer. Continue to sip it as you enjoy the dialogue about to come up. And I'll turn it back over to Todd to take it away and introduce Hillary. Thank, thank Wonderful. You. Thanks, Ken. Um, so, with us today, we have uh, Dr. Hillary McBride, as she's already been piping in a bit on conversation, which has been wonderful. Um, Hillary is a therapist, an author, a speaker, researcher, as well as an experienced podcaster. Um, you may know her from her work with the CBC on her podcast, Other People's Problems, or maybe from the Liturgist podcast. Uh, Hillary holds a doctorate in, in counseling psychology and is a registered clinical counselor. She's also the author of Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, uh, which we're going to be discussing from today, and I believe was at least uh, in part driven by the research that you did for your PhD. 
Um, I understand that you're also working on a new book, and I'd love for you to tell us about that uh, during our talk. Uh, but first, thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm uh, so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. We're really uh, happy to be able to sit down and talk with you. Um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, how you first became a therapist or what kind of was the catalyst towards that? Mm -hmm. So I like to say that I came to therapy on my own, and that's really important to say because both my parents are therapists. Oh, <laughs> so I didn't when know I, that. I, I it wasn't the family tree that drove you, you know, and you, they, it's really surprising for a lot of people to hear that they actually respected my decision to not go and go into the profession and to study psychology. And actually, for a long time, I wanted to be a midwife. So um, I came from a birth this morning. One of my closest oh. friends oh, gave wow. birth oh, this morning, and so I was her doula. And everybody's birth, good. Everything's everybody's great. good. Oh, yeah, it was. Really really, really special, really beautiful. Um, but I, I left uh, an undergraduate program that I was in where I was studying performance violin. Uh, violin was um, my instrument. It was my first degree. Violin was really important to me, but it was also tied up in all sorts of stuff that I felt was really about pathology, about perfectionism, and really about me trying to do everything the way it was supposed to be done. That's a really common narrative, I think, mm -hmm. for people who play classical music is that it's mm -hmm it has to be this way otherwise like that one wrong note yes um is an indicator that i am a failure not just that i didn't rehearse my piece enough but that there's something wrong with me so i left school i took a break from my studies and went and lived in a birth house in the philippines and hmm. delivered some babies caught some babies did all sorts of perinatal education in the surrounding villages with some of the, the women who didn't have access to medical care and found in the process that I loved the experience of being with someone in a big transition, that there was something mm -hmm. about journeying with someone and being able to say, this pain you're feeling is actually okay and part of something good that's coming for you if yeah. you stay with it and you don't resist it. It really spoke to me about the human experience. And I came back from the Philippines and applied for midwifery school and didn't get in and so decided to study psychology in the meantime. And while I was studying psychology, I realized, oh, this is what I want to do. This is what I loved ah. about being with women who are birthing was the experience of being alongside someone. Well, there would be, going yeah, a lot something. of tangents or similar kind of trajectories with that. Yeah, or even like the, the metaphor of what is happening, even the, the midwifery models to say there's nothing wrong with you, there's nothing dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. This is actually a good, natural, beautiful process of being human. And, and so instead of pathologizing you, we can see your goodness and your strength and um, the vitality and meaning that comes from going through this experience. So... I started to study psychology and fell in love with it and fell in love with the research process, what it means to uncover new insights and then be able to distribute them amongst our, our community members in such a way that could transform our quality of life. And so really kind of got sold on that. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, from what I understand, um, counseling can be a, a bit of an emotionally uh, taxing sort of career. So I would imagine that in order to kind of stick with it and have the passion for it that I, I, mean, I can see physically in you when you're talking about it, that you've got to be able to have the sense of hope and uh, of purpose with that. Yeah. And I would say that like a phrase that comes to mind for me often when I think about my work is Nietzsche, which was then co-opted by Frankel, Victor Frankel, a logotherapist and existentialist who survived the Holocaust. He says, parroting uh, Nietzsche's words, 
if you have a why, you can get through any how, mm-hmm. right? So if there is a sense of deep meaning for us in something, it's almost like we could endure anything. I mean, that, that really is the only explanation for marathon running, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> you have to really believe something is important to be able to survive these right. huge uh, withdrawals on your body's resources. And, mm-hmm. and the irony with counseling is that it is taxing, but it's also deeply meaningful, it's hmm. deeply, um, I shouldn't even just say meaningful, but uh, life-giving for me in some way. That in the meaning, it feels restorative to be a part of witnessing somebody's transformation and growth. So particularly because of the nature of the work that I do, I'm not just focused on really high acuity of pathology, but also people who are like, I just right. want to be in more healthy Day-to-day relationship with myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of my areas of clinical specialty is trauma and trauma, although it's complex in the impact that it has on our lives, it's actually quite straightforward to treat. And we can take someone from feeling like they're unable to function to thriving in a relatively stepwise mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. And it is the most liberating, empowering, invigorating thing to see someone whose life was small and painful feel open and free. So oh. what are the, some of the things that turn that around just in terms of the mm. clinical work? Um, you, you talk about meaning mm-hmm. and, and the need for meaning. So if you're listening to someone tell their story, and tell, are you listening for that kind of the place where they might not feel meaning or meaningful? Yeah. And then you can kind of go in and help. Yeah, so there's, I might language it a little bit differently, but there's in the school of therapy that I practice, there's a a kind of clinical intervention that we call looking for transformance. And transformance is like the non- the non-Christian, non-religious word for the spirit in us that is always moving us towards growth Mm. and growth and thriving hope, uh, capacity, transformation. And so it's the, I liken it to the blade of grass that pushes up through the concrete, that there's always the seed of life that's moving through us. And that sometimes when we are overwhelmed with the pain of the concrete, so to speak, it becomes almost impossible for us to see the blade of grass because we're weighed down with what's happening and to have another and other mm-hmm. who's across from you attuned to you and noticing your story and really paying attention and looking for it see that blade of grass one helps us feel seen and not alone which mm-hmm. is part of the part of the pain like when we're in pain yeah. we feel really lonely but also helps us learn mm-hmm. to look for those things too Wonderful. And so you've written a couple of books. Mm-hmm. Well, you've written, I've read Mothers, uh, Daughters, and Body Image. You mm-hmm. have a new one coming out? Yeah, I have a textbook that was also published in 2018 called Embodiment and Eating Disorders, which is more for clinicians and academics. Mm-hmm. So it's not the kind of thing you pick up to read on a Friday <laughs> night. Although it is Why the kind not? of thing I would pick up to read on a Friday night or write <laughs> right, on a yeah. Friday night. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but my new book is coming out February 20, uh, February 9th, 2021. It's called Embodied, and it's about a lot of this stuff. So I think the subtitle that we're working with right now is why what we think, say, and do when it comes to our bodies matters for just about everything. So really attacking uh, the mind-body dualism narrative and the story that a lot of us have, especially if we grew up in faith context, that the body is bad, which is really kind of like a leftover idea from Gnosticism and also Descartian dualism and all of these things that infuse our Spiritual is good, the physical is bad. Exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. And looking at how that's true, not just when things are good, because that's a really privileged perspective of embodiment to say, I'm able, I'm white, I'm young, I'm fertile, right? All of those things. Um, My body looks similar to what the ideal is. Like embodiment shouldn't just be for the white able, right? Embodiment Mm -hmm. needs to be an experience that all of us have access to. So it's, it's about us being in our bodies and pulling apart the stories that make it hard to be in our bodies, but also 
us mobilizing to some degree yeah. to tear down the oppressive yes. structures and hierarchies, which make it unsafe for some people yeah. to actually be in their bodies. No, I think yeah. that's, that's fascinating. I, so I'm, I'm pumped <laughs> so about So February 9th, you said? February 9th, 2021. Oh, so, so you're coming to here. help us in the spring. I am, I'm so excited. To do a, a symposium on mm-hmm. sexual shame, and so the book will be out then. No, 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 no. so 2021. Oh, 2021. Oh. Wrong year, Todd. Oh, that's so like about subtitles. a year. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I'm disappointed. Ask <laughs> I know, I'm disappointed too. I was ready for it to come out like last yeah, year. Yeah. I'm ready. So thanks for asking about it. I'm Thank excited you. for it to oh, come out. Oh, no, I'm excited mm-hmm. to read it. Um, as we are wanting to talk, I know a lot of us here on the podcast, I, I'm not sure what the demographics of all of our listeners are, but I know that at least for some of them, um, we've come out of a, a pretty evangelical sort of uh, background. And so things uh, that you're talking about, things like purity culture and sexual shame, I, I'm very familiar with. It was, that was my youth days. Um, and I... I was wondering if you if we could talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, because there's part where I have found it intriguing and kind of my my own coming out of that and and trying to understand it and trying to um, maybe redeem some of the damage done from it. That I I would love to hear what your thoughts on the movement are. Like, I, I would like to ascribe that there at least were some positive intentions mm. behind it, but I think a lot of those were fear based still. Yeah. I mean, okay. I I don't know how many positive intentions or um, remnants of purity culture there are, but I could say if I zoomed out really wide and I was extremely gracious, I could say. I'm trying to. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That it can be helpful for us to have certainty in in uncertain areas, Mm -hmm. right? When something is messy and confusing, we can overcorrect or knee-jerk response by creating a lot of black and white thinking, rigidity, certainty as a way of creating some safety for us. Which again, as you were mentioning, Alison, is a response to fear. When something is scary for us, we often want to lock down and control it. And so I think the fear around sexuality, sexual behavior, intimacy, bodies, the erotic, all of that is really just us like a big arrow pointing back to this mind-body dualism that we have and the story mm-hmm. that bodies are somehow impure and lead us away from God as opposed to mm-hmm. a more imminent perspective of the divine that God is here right right now in this cell, in this breath, in this moment. So, I mean, I could be that's very nice, generous. That's really zooming out. What, <laughs> yeah, yeah, really yeah. zooming out so, and saying that. So mm-hmm. if, if we're not going to zoom out a mm-hmm. little bit, what do you think, like there, I would like to believe and in some of the conversations that, I've heard happening more now than, than in like the 90s and the early 2000s when, when I was a teenager. Um, I, I'd like to think that there's been some, some positive movement towards this, but do you still see and encounter a lot of kind of these, this, this, yeah, this fear that has led to this, this fixation on sex and sexuality and virginity and all of those things where in particular religious groups and, and that I can only speak from my experience there, um, that religious groups have often sought to control people's bodies, women's bodies a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think that they've done that so much? Okay, can you can you <laughs> succinctly summarize your question? <laughs> you said so many good things in here, Probably I want to make sure I, I know what you're asking. Sure, okay. sum it up, Todd. So yeah. it, do you see that, it's, that this is still functioning? Yeah. So yeah. we have, like, Rick's got mm-hmm. the clip. Like, when I was a youth minister um, years ago, it's a long time ago, and, uh, and there's a, there was a song. 
And I remember. I remember it well from my childhood. You remember this song, right? Yeah. It's called. You gotta get to the. It's interesting to me because I thought they're singing about not wanting to so It's really interesting. Have but, you heard that phrase, um, sex is dirty and awful and horrible, save it for the one you love? Se- that- Can you say that <laughs> one more time? Without the- sex is dirty, horrible, and awful, so you should save it for the one you love. Yeah, so this we're talking idea. about oh my goodness. purity culture is that, you know, promise rings mm-hmm. and usually yeah. was focused more yeah. on the, the girls and the boys, the mm-hmm. women and the men. And Allison's questions, there were two parts mm-hmm. that, that I discerned in it. One was, is, is some of that, are the remnants still there yeah. in that? And why, in your mind, is, is this such an impulse, particularly in religious cultures, that as those religious cultures get rigid, this is certainly not only Christian, right? But as religious, cult- religious cultures get rigid, or sometimes other cultures as well, the first thing that's controlled is, a, is the female body. So what I think a lot of us growing up in evangelicalism wanted to believe was that the church was outside of culture, that the mm-hmm. church stood outside of time and secular thought. And we can trace that, um, or I should say, we, we can argue against that, even in looking at the way that Plato, or sorry, that Paul and some of the first, um, the letters in the early church were written, were influenced by Platonic thought mm-hmm. and what Plato was saying and how, unfortunately, as much as we'd like to think that the church exists outside of the sociocultural discourse right. at large, unfortunately, we're embedded in it right. and we don't even see... So the mind-body deals yeah. and the spirit-body deals. Yeah. yeah, that exists it's outside of religion. Yeah. And yeah. so what happens in terms of the remnants is people leave evangelicalism and leave purity culture and they just encounter different versions of the same thing that were already right. in purity culture, mm. right? The right. hypersexualization of women's bodies, rape myths, right. which blame women but get men off scot-free for their sexual violence, um, their perpetuation of kind of pressure around women and their sexual activity as as somehow being related to their worth, either Mm -hmm. increasing or decreasing their worth. And those are things that transcend faith context, unfortunately. And so when we look at, yes, the remnants of purity culture, there is also this other thing that's been going on regardless of purity culture, even longer than purity culture, Mm. that we can't get away from in a Western, white supremacist, Mm post-colonial, Um, heterosexist patriarchal culture and context Mm -hmm. and I think about the religious cultures piece um, why why this happens more in faith context and again to kind of link it to my previous statement I I don't know if it happens more in faith context but rather that the the tie of behavioral control as related to salvation and moral worth is ratcheted up in such a way that people feel a drive towards more compliance to secure so, eternal life. So now yeah. you're not just bad, you're in danger of going eternal to hell. damnation. Yes, or yes. Something. because right. regardless of if you're in a faith context or not, people are still saying to women, you were sexually assaulted, what were you wearing? Yes. But in religious cultures, we're also saying, and it makes your soul impure, and so you're going to go to hell forever. So that, that has been a way to create behavioral control in people because if that is the eternal life, if that's what really matters and this is just the dress rehearsal, then, uh, then we have to do what other people tell us to here to be okay there. But implicit mm-hmm. in that is um, the hierarchy of leadership, that people don't have access to God, that leaders have access to God, and that leaders know truth, yeah. and that they're not in social context as well. Uh, and on top of that, I think this 
the rigid thinking that comes with the desire to create clarity and power and control in a way that makes us feel different than culture. Mm-hmm. No, and I think it's it's very interesting. In your book, you you reference I think probably one of the biggest things that stood out to me uh, that was just beautiful um, was the concept of ladders that you talk about. Oh, now, thank you. In in your book, you're specifically talking about the relationship between mothers and daughters. So, I and generations of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I just found that 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 was that was beautiful, and it was so hopeful mm-hmm. because. I know that as, I, I don't know if you'd call me like a survivor of purity culture or what, whatever you would label that as, um, there, there was so much hope in, in that image and I thought it was really beautiful and I wondered if you maybe could kind of sum up that concept for mm-hmm. our listeners. Well, if we back up and, and kind of go broader than even my book, I think that there is a, a tendency to feel like we have to do everything right in our life. Like we have this one shot and we have to get it right and it's all on me and my decisions in order to be good enough and have a life that's memorable. My and behavior, my choices, my, it's just mm-hmm. yeah. anthropological, you know, self-centeredness. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And also just kind of scientifically inaccurate. I mean, it was mm-hmm. Jung who even said to us, if you don't make the unconscious conscious, it will control your life and you call it fate, mm. right? That there are these things that are shaped, that have shaped us, that we've lived within that make us like beer or not. Like I talk to my husband all the time about beer. He's like, it's awful. You just have to push through. <laughs> you have to push through and then it gets really good. It's like Breaking Bad. <laughs> That's right. And I, w- I grew up in a, a kind of, I guess, a, a community of people who said, if you don't like something, don't push through it. Right. right. And so why did I make the choice to not push through with the beer? Because I had this community around me who said, pay attention to your preferences. Right. So I'm taking beer and I'm, I'm, I want to extrapolate it to yeah. something bigger, but we have these contexts that are around us that shape us and make life and what's happening in our individual life so much more complicated than just my choices. But where this comes up a lot and how I hear it in therapy is parents saying like, I'm really afraid to wreck my kid. I'm oh, really afraid. I'm terrified of that. I have, two, I have two kids. Yes. So the fear of like, if I don't get this right, I'll hurt them. And my favorite, most I think empowering and grief-stricken statement I could say to a parent is you will hurt your kid yeah. and it's fine. Yeah. I mean, don't abuse them. I don't hear you mm-hmm. saying that you're going to do that. <laughs> but I have no intention to, no. just for the record. But, but you're, the you're idea, a human being. Yes, yeah. You're a not human going being. to be able to be a godlike figure. That's right. Them. You can't yeah. be all things to them. And even the, the patients who sit in my clinic, who sit with me in, in therapy and say, my parents were perfect. Yeah, I still flag. have pain. Well, yeah, they'll often what they'll say is, uh, "Oh, I seriously right." Yes. They didn't show me what it's like to make mistakes and then take responsibility for them. So I don't actually feel like there's room for me mm. to play or expand my identity because I don't know how to do it perfectly like they did it. Yeah. So even in the perfection, there's hurt. Yeah. The point is that we can't not hurt the people around us because we're human because we're always bumping up against each other. And what we can do is zoom out and see ourselves as one one rung in the long ladder of humanity. And instead of us being an individual where all of the weight to get things right is on our shoulders, instead thinking about just doing my part to create mm. space for the generation that comes yes. after me to have one it's rung beautiful. Right, where they could be just a little bit more healthy than I could be. Mm-hmm. Right? And that comes from my life too in looking at the story of my mom being really abused by her parents and making a vow to herself that she would never abuse me. But she didn't know what to do when I had lots of emotions and we were right. in conflict. So she would leave the room, mm. which left me feeling abandoned in my emotion. Yeah. And so what we learned and processed through 
in lots of work together, my mom and I was, that was the best gift she could have given me to not hit me. But yeah. she hurt me in a different way. Sure. And then yeah. I'm going to do something different if I ever have children to, to not hurt them that way. And in that way, we're all kind of moving ourselves towards heaven, mm-hmm. I think. In these small steps over time where we say, I'm going to take responsibility for the piece that I can take responsibility for. And I'm going to give you a better starting place than I could have had. So the expression that goes along with that is, I want my ceiling to be your floor. Mm -hmm. I want the max amount of growth that I could be or have to be the place where you start. So that some of the wounds that I carry, I'm going to take responsibility for so you don't have to pick up the mess for them. But I'm going to empower you to clean up the mess that I've left for you because that yeah. will inevitably happen. There's such a strong energy. Like my kids are now, they're adults, 22 and 20. But we live in North Vancouver, so they still live with us. And we love having them there. And we, but what you're speaking about here, that sense of like just, just one more rung. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, they, when your kids get to the age where they're able to kind of see you as people a bit more and then they express uh, love for you in a different way and also an awareness of your own so so my sons can express an awareness of my own kind of quirks or shortcomings or whatever but then reach out through that it is just this it, it th- that latter concept is so fantastic yeah. you look at your kids as adults and go i'm so grateful mm-hmm. that that they're seeing this and taking yeah. this step and so it's something that really is wonderful this is a a word that i used for a concept that came up in the research so whether you call it a ladder whether you call it a permission slip whether you call it mm-hmm. the ceiling floor phenomena What showed up in my research is that moms were taking responsibility for their baggage. Mm -hmm. They're like, I'm going to do some work and I'm going to give you some things I never got. But Mm -hmm. as their daughters were climbing the ladder, right, just picture the metaphor, they're reaching down and they're saying, mom, come up here. Yeah, that's so great. Come up here. You can still grow. There's more for you. You don't have to stay stuck there. Yeah, no, I I have a very similar kind of, uh, maybe that's one of the reasons that struck me so much is my mom and I have had uh, that sort of relationship where she experienced um, abuse as a child and made vows that she would never put me in those sort of situations. And the, the thing I found fascinating with my mom in particular is her, her willingness to, to continue to grow as she's gotten older. And, um, but she very much wanted to give me more than what she had. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it is, uh, it's a beautiful thing to say that it's not all on you that Mm -hmm. everything isn't just tied to my individual choices because it acknowledges our interconnectedness, which is something that we kind of moved away from in through colonization. Mm -hmm. This like the self, uh, the self-made person is, is a reality and we, we know that it's not, but when we acknowledge our interconnectedness, what we can also do is borrow from each other's freedom. If you're learning something and you're moving forward in freedom and we're connected to each other and I have access to all of the learning that you're doing. And in that way, it invites me into more freedom. Mm -hmm. That's, that's great. Um, you talk also in your, in your book, you take it out of strictly a, a religious, um, context you say like when girls and women hate and try to control their bodies they're actually doing exactly what our culture has told them to do they're good girls and women existing in the very way that the dominant narratives of women and men have instructed them to and you say but what if culture is wrong mm-hmm. and i'm just like yeah what if it's what actually, if culture is wrong what if it's wrong and what if it's wrong about <laughs> women and and girls bodies but also what if it's wrong about men's bodies as yeah. well i feel like one of it's really easy to talk about how how women and how how girls were in one sense the victims of things like purity culture and sexual shame um i feel like it is less spoken about that men were as well because if you didn't fit the mold 
in my evangelical upbringing of like the godly man and you weren't the head of the house and you weren't strong and you like that there was a shame in that that and did you do you have any um kind of thoughts about like men in yeah. in the purity culture like what was that been like for them yeah so I'll go back to your the first part of your statement which I think is, is so worth repeating that so many of us hate our bodies and then also have enough social insight to realize that there's something that's not okay about mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. right so I, I talk to a lot of women who are like I identify as a feminist but why am I still dieting mm-hmm. right or like I I want more for myself than to feel stuck in diet culture, but why do I still like look at the women on the magazine covers with envy? And we we don't have to get rid of anger and frustration, but what I might be suggesting is that we turn it from something that moves against our own selves to being against culture. So instead of Mm -hmm. hating our bodies, hate the stories that we're told about them. And that can be a way just to mobilize enough, enough change that it would allow us to see oh, no wonder I feel this way. I was being compliant. And in fact, it would have cost me belonging and connection and social worth if I would have challenged these things. Because what, guess what happens to people who are outside of the ideal, right? They're shamed. Right. Yep. We use characteristics about them as labels to bully kids, right? The number of times that kids have been called fat as if it's a bad thing like contributes to fat phobia, right? Mm-hmm. And then we get punished if in some way we're, we're not ascribing to the sociocultural discourse about the ideal body. So I think it's okay, in fact, really good to be angry mm. at the discourse around bodies. But to your, to your other point, I think the paradigm of purity culture is built on heterosexism and gender binaries, which don't mm-hmm. actually allow right. for the complexity of being human. <laughs> and it perpetuates a toxic masculinity narrative that both um, frees men to not take responsibility for their actions, but also creates a kind of hypersexualization yeah. around men that a lot of men don't live up to. So there's lots of men who view, they finally got to the point that they were married, they, you know, air quotes, save themselves for marriage. And then all of a sudden they're like, but I, mm. I don't want to have sex as much as I was told that I would oh, want yeah. to. And am I less of a man in some way? Mm-hmm. So the narrative of hypersexualization of math of men through toxic yeah. masculinity creates a paradigm that men themselves can't right. live up to. And often comorbid with that, I use that like a clinical yeah. term, like it's, this is, yeah. this is a <laughs> clinical pathology yeah. that we have toxic masculinity, <laughs> but comorbid with that is is the emotional repression that goes along with um, a masculinity which says you need to be stoic all the time. That cuts men off to access all sorts of themselves, all parts of themselves that would also contribute to maybe a more well-rounded or Mm -hmm. whole sexuality that isn't just about objectifying another person's Mm -hmm. body or their own, but allows emotional intimacy and connectedness on a kind of sensual level to be a part of closeness but when sex is the end goal, and it's also bad, <laughs> and it has to look a certain way. Uh, There's that, a lot of conflicting things in that. Yeah, and actually, so one of my areas of research is around sexual functioning, and I was at a, um, speaking at a conference a few years ago about it, and I heard something from the stage that just like burned in my memory, <laughs> that it was from a sex researcher, Barry McCarthy, who's super well-known for his research on desire and arousal, particularly in aging populations. And what he found is that men were actually the first to, to call it quits on sexual activity right. in a marriage because the paradigm of s- good sex says you have an erection, you have vaginal penetration, you have an orgasm, 
and then you are satisfied. There's nothing about your partner in there. There's nothing Mm -hmm. about like maybe more nuanced forms of arousal and sexuality. And if you have trouble having or sustaining an erection, what do you do? Then you can't have good sex anymore and your masculinity is on the line. So they just stop and give it up. They just stop. Yeah. That's not part of, yeah. Yeah. I just, I'm just not going to do that because then there's so much shame. But if you look at, again, what the environmental context has said about men and masculinity, it's don't feel. Right. So then they've got shame and they have nowhere to go about it. Don't know how to talk about it. It has to be repressed because you don't look strong and stoic. I mean, it's just this like landmine. How much of this has to do with sexual assaults or like we, we, introed with the Weinstein story, mm-hmm. uh, like six examples I've read have said the women came into the room, they were, and they noticed like Viagra on the counter or something, right? right? That there's this just like, that everything, all these pieces of this, uh, you know, problem are playing into this, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and I would argue that patriarchy, as much as it shapes this um, really narrow definition of, of what it can mean to be a woman really also hurts men in that way, yeah. right? That this story about masculinity is so restrictive that that men are hurting. And often, I mean, one of my main sources of referrals is from cardiologists where their uh, mid-life sure. male patients are coming to them with heart issues. Lo and behold, it's anxiety that they've never been able to deal with sure. because you oh. can't name anxiety, but sure. you can name Yeah, as a man, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Oh the, have you heard of Ben Greenfield? Mm-mm. So this was in the Times of London a few days ago, so you could look it up. It just came on like my Apple News or whatever. But Ben Greenfield, I think he's in Spokane of all places, but he's world-renowned okay. now. And uh, the article was on what they call biohacking. Uh, yes. So he basically has, he's 40 years old, I think. I hope, sorry if I'm getting some of it wrong. And he has uh, figured out how to be like the perfect male specimen, basically. So, you know, he watches every single thing he eats. So I'd like just, per- and, you know, so like the... You know, the royalty in Dubai and all these, you know, and, and the Jack Dorsey, the head of Twitter, and they're all going to him for advice, right? But there's a few interesting things there, the, the, the toxic masculinity and what it might mean. But also he, in the, in the article, it's a lengthy article, talks about how he and his wife met in Sunday school. So then you're wondering what plays in from church <laughs> culture here. And then it, it ends with basically him saying, um, this is kind of getting away from the last question, but <laughs> that, that once you get to like perfect fitness, People are now coming to him saying, well, what's the point of perfect fitness? Exactly. And so he said they're asking him questions like, how do I pray? Yeah. Now you're getting wow. back to your meaning stuff. That's and right. Kind of really interesting article. But yeah. So, so yeah. The so res- anyway, Ben the res- Greenfield. Ben Greenfield, I'll have to look yeah. him up. Yeah. The research about eating disorders and dieting, particularly among women, I don't have the stats or the empirical data on men, but shows us that the closer you get to the ideal, so the more your body looks like the social construction of what the ideal body looks like, the more fixation, the more rigidity, the more anxiety, the more compulsion there is. And so people actually are, are starting to realize, I think, on some level that this story that if I perfect my body and I'll be happy, it, it's a farce, right? Mm-hmm. And we're trying to control and subdue our body as if our body is the problem and not that our culture is the problem. So that doesn't diminish as you get closer to the ideal. Exactly, it, it actually increases. Yeah. yeah. So wow. the more the more you practice dieting and getting per, you know, kind of focused right. and and fixated on your body, do you think that's going to stop? Like neurocognitively what you've been doing is repeating those pathways compulsively. They actually couldn't go away even if you wanted them to as soon as your body ri- reached a goal weight. It's just Wow. It's um too bad. Yeah, <laughs> I've heard it's the same way with people who like bad. are like super crazy about saving money. 
that oh, they live their gosh. whole lives to get to retirement. They save a bunch of money, sort of, and then they don't spend the money when yeah. they retire. I would think that any sort of compulsion like that, that when when you have like a goal driven by either, I would suspect, yeah. like fear or um, that you're not going to have enough, that you're not going to be enough, like all those things, I would mm. imagine that once it's compulsive, it, it's very difficult sure. to actually stop it. Yeah, we get some neural rewiring in terms of the reward circuitry in the brain. So the more you do the thing that you were compulsive to doing, the more dopamine you get released. So it actually just kind of fuels the cycle. It's a, um, yeah. I wanted to actually touch nasty. on uh, some, some of your um, work that you've done as far as like some of those things like with, mm. with mental health um, issues with that. I listened to your liturgist podcast uh, with Audrey Assad on scrupulosity. Mm fascinating oh my goodness very good very Thank very you. good i would highly recommend so listeners it. if you haven't yes listened to go it. go and listen yeah. to it um and one of the things that i found most compelling about it was she's describing these these behaviors that were damaging and toxic and compulsive for her and their behaviors that i'm like those are things that were held up in my faith community as desirable as pious mm-hmm. as showing that your your faith was strong how how do we deal with that like where where has um has religion taken those sorts of behavioral issues and and exacerbated mental health problems mm-hmm. for people yeah so the way I make sense of it is that as soon as religion becomes a pathway to take us out of life, we've got a problem. Mm. And so if you are using strategies that are praised in your community, one, you're going to use them more because we're reward, reward and praise driven beings and we want to be good and seen as like valuable in the eyes of our community. But when those things are being used as a dysfunctional way of coping, um, we get a temporary benefit from them. It's like, right, if you are, um, if you're feeling overwhelmed and you do some online shopping or you drink, like it feels good for a few moments. The problem mm-hmm. is it doesn't actually take away the source of the pain that's underneath. Yeah. And if the pain that's underneath has actually been put by the, the, put there by the community that's also telling you how to get away from it, there's something that's not really working mm-hmm. in that circuitry, right? So if the community is saying you're fundamentally bad, Right, that creates an existential anxiety and shame in us that gets written into our neurophysiology. But then, if the community is also saying, "But we're going to praise you if you you cope in these ways," right? It feels good, right? Because then we're like, "Oh, good! I I can make up for the fact that I'm fundamentally bad." But if we step back and think even outside of faith contexts, scrupulosity. Um, obsessive compulsive disorder or even what we would call pure OOCD where there isn't the things on the outside it's just a lot of it's happening inside your own head those are all strategies to manage internal states of distress Mm. and if no one is teaching you how to manage those internal states of of depress you're going to do distress Mm -hmm. you're going to do whatever you can to make them go away even if it hurts you in the moment so ultimately what we need to do is support people in faith communities to move back into life, back into emotion, back into their body. But how could you be with emotion if you were told that emotion is bad and it makes you a problematic leader, right? Or it makes you untrustworthy. Yeah, I I remember in a CBC podcast, your other people's problems Mm -hmm. uh, podcast, you're speaking to uh, with a client and about some of these issues and shame. And I think you said about shame that 
it tells you that you're bad and you're making things around you yeah. worse. And yeah. so that you have a personality type that would then use that and just, you know, try to dig out of that yeah. in the cycle. It must be difficult for you to see this in people. Is it, is it, you mentioned earlier that in some cases it's, it's kind of easy. I don't, that's not the word you use, but to help people through some Straight of this. Straightforward. Straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, is that the case here or can it be really, really difficult to help people out of this? This is one of my favorite things to treat. Ah, that's not, that's not true. <laughs> I love it all. I love it all. It's all so much. But there is something so freeing for a person to realize, oh, this is a this is a behavior that I've gotten stuck in because it actually worked. And so I can be thankful for that behavior. It uh, helped me survive. Mm. And even the kind of the parts of me that were about coping that aren't so functional in my life, even those are a mark of my goodness and my adaptability. That even in cutting myself or even mm-hmm. in... Um, hurting myself in some way or shoving something down or distracting or doing things a thousand times, that there is some transformance in that. That is my body in a very fundamental, organic way saying, you don't have any better tools, so we're going to do this. And it worked. Mm. Ish. Until it didn't. (laughs) Until it didn't. Until you're like, oh, it's getting in the way of my life. And so to support a person to have awareness and compassion for that process and then come underneath it, if that's the solution, but not the problem, what problem is that solution solving? What's going on underneath for me? Mm. Um, what I love about about this is the the word that's kind of making its way into the mainstream, um, and we, we call it spiritual bypassing, which is using spiritual practices or religious practices to bypass a real life experience, and then to get a pat on the back from your community or from yourself about it in a way that really affirms you. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's, you're taking a spiritual bypass and feeling really good about it because your community said, that would be a good thing to do. Cheering. Yeah. Cheering. Yeah. Yeah. But we just label that now as one of the defenses, like intellectualizing or numbing or avoiding or spiritual bypassing. It's one of those things you do to get away from feeling to try to shove it down. Mm -hmm. So if we have these faith communities that some might argue have, you know, exacerbated some of these things like sexual shame and promoting purity culture and promoting like um, encouraging these sorts of obsessive behaviors what sort of what sort of steps can faith communities take then to to move away from from the position of of not helping to a position of actually helping the people in their communities mm-hmm. yeah maybe an easier point of entry would be to say if you're in one of those faith communities that you're not sure if you're helping or hurting, what could you do? Because I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of systemic stuff, yeah. uh, colonization, white supremacy, patriarchy yeah. bound yeah. up in leadership. And I don't yeah. know if we can, Fear, I think, yeah, to take so it to, down. To turn it around is not. Yeah. So what could burn it down? Yes. That's Nadia. Uh-huh. Well. I may have to say that quote. Uh, yeah. um, there's a, a quote by Audre Lorde. She says, you can't use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. Mm. And I think about that in relation to faith communities. If we're going to try and pray it away and praying our way into it mm. is where we got stuck, I don't, I don't know if we can do that. Like yeah. I think it might need to be real subversion. I think it might need to be going into the body. I think it might need to be about making things, making ourselves aware instead of the bypassing. I think yeah. it might be moving away from shame into... Uh, original blessing, right? Yeah. Right, right. Language. Right. Oh. Amen. Thank yes. you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You had to burn it down. Yes, though. I did. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, um, 
So a book that, that I, I read about uh, about a year ago was uh, Shameless by Nadia Bowles-Weber. And pretty much the catalyst to her writing the book was uh, she'd been through a divorce and was beginning to see a new partner. And she started wondering... She'd been a minister. She'd been a, she, yes, she was a minister while she wrote this book um, as well. Um, and she, she suddenly thought, at 50, do the same rules apply about sex that they did when I was in youth group? And then she started looking at her community around her and talking to a lot of people and understanding that a lot of people had really damaging views of sex um, that that were perpetuated by the church. Yeah. Um, and she talks about how she is calling for a sexual revolution. And the quote um, that she has is, it's time to pay attention to what is happening to the people around us and to our loved ones. And it's time for us to be concerned and she says, I'm not suggesting we make a few simple amendments. New wine and old wineskins ain't going to cut it. I'm saying let's burn it the fuck down and start over because it's time. And I feel like as somebody who has done a lot of work to, to get out of some of the mindsets of purity culture, of sexual shame, to try to make my relationships healthier with, with my spouse, with myself, that I'm like, yeah, I, I, I can get behind that. And it's stuff like when you talk about the concept of ladders, like I want to provide a better root or a better floor for my daughter mm -hmm. and for my son mm -hmm. and have a better understanding about sexuality and body image. Mm -hmm. It's um, it's a really important principle in trauma therapy to say that if trauma is something that leaves us feeling confused, overwhelmed and powerless, that healing would be something that where we are uh, creating experiences of being informed and empowered mm. and feeling safe. And, and sometimes that can happen in communities, right? Because if you remember how we got here, it wasn't on a desert island. We mm. were with people who said, these are the ways that you have value. These are the ways that you belong. Because we're social creatures, we need our tribe. We need our community to affirm us and belong. But maybe, maybe we have to build these communities yes. a little bit differently. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe we actually have to deal with the stories that a lot of us have been given around conditional worth and conditional belonging. Maybe it's time for divine imminence yes. to yes. appear on the stage. Mm -hmm. I Just to create some plugs for people. There's lots of really great books for people who are interested. If Shameless is something you liked, um, Beyond Shame by Matthias Roberts just came out. You're, you Are Your Own, a friend of mine, Jamie Lee Finch, Come As You Are, yeah. Nagoski, The Purity Myth, Jessica Valenti, and Pure, Linda K. Klein. All really good. We'll put those in the notes. Yeah. yeah. All really good resources which are starting to name the things that were there that weren't named, which is again part of the healing. I was just saying, is it. that one of the biggest changes that you've kind of seen? Like I... I mean, I was one of those very, um, like, I always thought my parents always had their stuff together. I was like, they're adults. They know what they're doing. I have grown up to realize that was less than the case, um, as I think probably a lot of kids do. Um, but I don't recall growing up that any of these conversations were happening. And I, I'm hearing them now. I'm hearing them at, like, younger ages. And, like, is that something that you've also seen? Like, is there hope in this? Yeah, there is. And, and remember that I'm coming at this in a few different ways one as an academic mm -hmm. and as someone who is who is part of the faith community um in academia people are looking at this and they're like oh what a really interesting and harmful phenomena but it's situated within our socio-cultural framework right. which is perpetuating yes. yeah, yeah this yeah. is like it's everywhere there's a person here and all that. yeah yeah and so we're looking at um 
we can see that what's happened in the church has happened in broader culture. And when changes are happening in broader culture too, they're also happening in the church, including a lot more rights in schools around access to sex education and yeah. a lot more information that produces kind of more flexibility in sexual activity besides these binary or kind of finite experiences of intimacy. So there's a big shift that's happening, moving away from the silence around sexuality and the shame of that culturally to us just talking about bodies more. And that, right, it's so hard when we've been in the church to not feel like the church is the center of all existence. Right. <laughs> so right. I want to again And then, and then you're not. And right. all of a sudden, yeah. Oh, then what do you do? Uh, well, no, but, yeah. it, but it's also liberating to a large degree. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, but lots of people leave the church and realize that the same problems that were in the church right. are everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Well, do you have any more questions? I don't. I, I'm glad to hear there's hope. Yeah, yeah. That, that's really kind of the biggest thing. Is I was I was really wanting, and I mean, I I figured you probably had hope considering the way that you write and how I've heard you speak, because I'm really hoping that there is hope in this. My best friend calls therapist hope dealers. Yeah. <laughs> like, first one's free. I'll hook you up. Right? That's fantastic. There's, yeah, I love it. That there's always something to see if you're looking for it. Yeah. And I feel that way about beauty, and I feel that way about yes. life, and I feel that yes. way about God. Yes. Not to say that God is actually different than life or beauty. I mm. think right. it's all yes. of that. But if you have eyes to see, it's everywhere. Your and reminder so, of mm. imminence is yes. something that... And I think, you know those of us who have had connection to the church and still do and still value the church and um, there is this kind of sense of well what's the pushback going to be you know who who, do, who are the people who get to decide what's proper and right and people who are at these mics like us talking like this uh, there are definitely people many of whom we love who would say well you're this is really dangerous or you're wrong mm-hmm. or we and you know one of the constant battles we have is that you know anybody whether it's in culture or faith or anything I always push back against this if you can some if you can sum a presentation up that somebody's making or argument by things used to be better, um, you're not offering me anything. Yeah. And so I think that's present in culture, that's present in... So in a way, it's for us, and you help with this, and we're really grateful for that. With the liturgists and with other things and with the CBC podcast and your writing, you help people like us mm. to feel good about this kind of work mm. because it is... Uh, there's a professional side to it, there's a clinical side to it, there's an imminent reality to what is happening... But for those of us who share this faith, and, it, and you know, many of our friends obviously don't, and that's fantastic, it, it enlivens that in the way to say, no, mm-hmm. we, we don't have to answer to these people who are shaking yeah. their heads and saying, you know, danger, 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 right? Because that will happen. And again, to be, for us to be compassionate to the people who, I would argue, fall to those places. Mm-hmm. Because I've, you know, you, we know what that feels like to kind of go, we've got we've to protect the fort, yeah. right? Yeah. And everything's getting to... I just saw... I was watching, um, of all things, James Corden. Or I think I saw it on YouTube or something. And he had, uh, oh, who's Mrs. Maisel? Rachel. Brosnahan. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, RuPaul on. And, and so RuPaul, like I guess in the previous incarnation, RuPaul was like drag queen, right? That, and it was the most conventional kind of, they were doing a little thing of like guessing whether something's a wig. But I was thinking of my kind of evangelical, evangelical upbringing and thinking, I picked up that people like this, this RuPaul sitting on the couch were like bad and evil and ho- and I just felt even watching this silly little sketch like 
thanks be to God that yes. I don't think that yeah, way that's right. anymore, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So we are really, really grateful. The oh. work you're doing, Thank I know you, you know so that much. it matters, but it matters oh. to people like us. Yes. Thank you so much. And, and so to have you come and join this conversation, and to uh, and we want to keep this going. Well, we yeah. do want to mention the symposium, which is yes. May... May 29th and 30th. May 29th and 30th. Uh, we'll put it in the episode notes. It's in Great. North Vancouver, where um, Hillary and some others will be speaking on some of these very topics. I uh, can't wait. Keynote it's presentations, seminars, such. Yes. Uh, thank you, Brett, for being here. Yes, Brett. You doing all right? Yes. You're great. Look Sitting fantastic. over here. He's done his flight. And uh, <laughs> Allison, Hillary, producer Rick, and everybody else, absolutely fantastic. Keep up the conversation. Read some of those books. Thank you, thank you Ken. And Ken is going to do a presentation to Hillary. Oh, yes. Oh, find fair. anything she likes? Me, uh, no, I didn't find anything she likes, <laughs> but I understand that her husband likes beer. So, so say, as a thank, thank you, you to him. Uh, <laughs> to as Kevin. a thank you to, to you. Thank and, you. And you can give it to your husband. Father's Day is coming up. Okay. And uh, oh there you go. Gosh, thank you very much. Screens. And we'll talk oh, to you all in an upcoming episode. Yeah. Thank you, Kendra. Thank you very much.